0: This is The Black Artist Project, an interview format podcast that delivers content on contemporary Black art history and visual culture, specifically focusing on Black artists across artistic disciplines with active practices in Rhode Island. This activity is made possible in part by a grant from the Rhode Island State Council on the Arts through an appropriation by the Rhode Island General Assembly and a grant from the National Endowment for the Arts. Jeneah Kizzy is an author, archivist, and historian living in the Providence area. She is also a lifelong avid horror fan who writes short horror fiction. Here is our conversation. So the first question is one that I've been asking all the guests, and that is when did you first know you were an artist?
1: Well, I've I've always loved art and art making, even when I was very, very small. But there was this moment when I was uh, leaving kindergarten, where I decided that I couldn't, I, since I was going to elementary school, I could not Play let's pretend with my friends anymore i was a i was a big kid and big kids don't play let's pretend which is absolutely not true i found in present day as an adult but i i had that in my mind and i was i was like all right instead of playing let's pretend with my friends now that i'm a big kid i'm going to be a writer and write my stories instead of pretending my stories Um, and so I must have been five or six at that point and it's just I've been writing and making art and playing Let's Pretend ever since.
0: Yeah, Take us back to that first story. What did you write about and how did your friends receive it?
1: (laughs) I wrote about Inspector Gadget, this 80s cartoon show about a A dude who's part like he's a cyborg he's part robot and he goes on adventures so my first my first writing um that I remember was fan fiction go figure and I I don't think I shared it with my friends but I remember my dad finding it just being completely tickled by it and being very encouraging uh he's a he's a writer as well and and also was doing comic books at the time and that kind of got me into the, the world of interstitial art, drawing and, and words together.
0: So you just mentioned your father is someone who may have had a hand in your becoming a, a writer, uh, but who are some of your other artistic mentors or writers that you've been inspired by?
1: Oh, the list is long. I would say a lot of the people who I'm most inspired by right now are my friends, Shea Rivera, Darcy Denegan, Seth Torge, uh, Rosalind Ves Diaz, Amy Eller Lewis, like they're they're all they're all writers who who do more than writing and see like a lot of depth in their writing. They're all people who who take writing into into new places, into theater, into nature, into the spiritual. Yeah, and they've they've all taught me just by inviting me into their spaces in in really very generous ways and then sometimes legitimately teaching like uh seth and darcy and rosalind are all teachers but often just just in demonstrating just in bravely being who they are oh i should i should add of course um becky davis and my friend rachel hughes who are both yeah um bipoc artists I mean, just seeing Mickey's work has made me a braver person, not just an artist, but a braver person. And it's really the spirit of generosity that's allowed me to learn a lot and and become a better artist.
0: So I know you work as someone who is interested in the intersections of sort of cultural work and activating archives and thinking more holistically about what that might mean for Rhode Island communities. So can you talk about what does it mean to activate an archive and sort of the responses that you've received in the work that you've been doing?
1: I think this is a big part of my own artistic practice in general, but I think activating archives is is not necessarily using the archives in the way that they were intended to be used archives are so often considered these these tomes of history meant to communicate a larger like capital T truth and and in fact even even though these these things are are documents of fact fact is a very shaky term to start with history is is told from the viewpoints of you know, the, the cliche is that it's told from the viewpoint of the winner, but it's really, it's like history is this massive multi-dimensional object that we're talking about. It has, it has the context of, of time. It has the context of societal understanding. It has the context of the past that it comes from. And so when we're talking about activating archives, it doesn't necessarily look like the traditional. I'm going to write a paper about this person. It looks. It looks at those those other dimensions of this massive, multi-dimensional object. It looks at like the emotional dimensions. It looks at the stories of BIPOC folks who may have to have their stories told between the lines. It exists in in the expressions and the hints that are given and not necessarily in the story that somebody decided to tell and keep as archives. And then to actually activate them, that that is where art is so important because it takes an act of creativity, it takes an act of imagination to actually make archives live. I, I think really the the traditional institutional use of archives is is really to almost kill the past the the past is like a a living thing and and to have an archive means you're saying oh it's just this one thing it's never just that one thing and it takes artists imaginations to draw those things out and make the past live again to make connections between the past and the present to use the past to imagine new futures yeah, and again, my my mentors do amazing work with this. Shea Rivera's interpretation of Antigone did that in a really amazing way where she connected Antigone with revolution in Puerto Rico. And Becky Davis's work where she takes a look at civil war and monuments of Black enslavement and really brings it into the present, really looks at these things as as living things, things that are still uh, existing and affecting people today.
0: Yeah, so what might your advice be for those who are looking to do this sort of work? I know you're sort of, you know, seated in library science and you work a lot with libraries in order to have this conversation with people who are interested in discovering the past in a new way, but beyond the library, beyond thinking about, you know, standardized ways of accessing information, what might you suggest for it for those who are interested?
1: Hmm. I think my suggestion would be to walk around, particularly with Rhode Island history, there's a lot of, there's a lot of things that are from the past. Are still connected to where we are and what we're doing today. I'm reminded there's a park in Warren Rhode Island that is actually a indigenous burial mound but they've been using it as like a park with a pretty like concert shell and like Mm. kids drive over these massive burial mounds and you wouldn't know that to see it but you would know that that's something important and I and I really feel like there's there's something so so tactile about place that is a beginning for that kind of historical research. So um, walk around and ask questions. Oh, another another initiative that's been really interesting is the Snowtown neighborhood, which was destroyed by white supremacists in the 1800s, and uh, now it's where the railroad is. And so, if you wondered, like, what was here before that, you, you go down the rabbit hole. There, there are indications. There are other people doing this work. I think getting in touch with with space is a is a really beautiful way to begin that kind of research. And then, from a from a practical standpoint, I mean, it's again, it's if you if we're talking specifically about Rhode Island, just talking to people can can do a whole lot historians and archivists and librarians love to talk and love to do research on these things just having a conversation with one of us can really open up whole new
0: worlds so even thinking about your comment where snowtown is now a railroad and that sort of citywide memory is slowly disappearing, right? Because if you aren't in touch with archives, if you aren't in touch with people who know histories about Rhode Island, you would never know that. And how has being in Rhode Island influenced your work and ideas about collaboration and community in preserving these sorts of stories?
1: I have to credit uh, Xander Morrow, who's one of the artistic directors of the Dirt Palace. I was interviewing her once or, or having a conversation for inf- information research purposes. And she said, in Rhode Island, it's kind of hard to spread out. You know, how um, nonprofits will typically like, you, you start one and then you sort of get bigger and bigger. And in Rhode Island, it's a little harder to do that or at times even unwise to do that. But she said, so instead of getting bigger, we got weirder and deeper. And I I still I haven't forgotten that like it's it's so it's so Rhode Island to really go go deep, deep in terms of connections, deep in terms of history and layers of time, deep in terms of art people really being unafraid to get vulnerable, unafraid to create beautiful things, and also being very intentional about those things. There's something about the the feedback loop of this of this community where we're all talking to each other, we're all very in proximity with each other that creates this this wonderful community and sure it means that eventually you know everybody and sure it means that like if you if you accidentally step on somebody's toes you're probably gonna have to deal with them in like a year or two years but that that also creates these amazingly nuanced connections and weird connections too the the weird is just it's it's a really beautiful thing. It puts us in uncomfortable places. And when you're in an uncomfortable place, you you find new ways of being. And i I know it's strange to say that that's a very Rhode Island trait, but I really I truly believe that our our smallness and our our tight- knittedness and our New Englandness all combine to make this like a, a place of open secrets, nuanced community. And, and like just deep, deep lore and connection.
0: Yeah. I wanna pick up on something you said about the weird and then mentioning lore just now because that's one of my favorite horror series. We love lore. Woo! Yeah, and I know you're an avid horror fan and an avid horror short fiction writer. So can you tell us a little bit more about how you got into that genre?
1: Yeah, um, it goes back to my dad. I I was watching horror movies way too young because it was, like, so important to my... <laughs> horror is so important to my father, and I think it was actually him teaching me a, a trauma-coping skill very early in life. Horror has this amazing phenomenon of having the potential to be extremely triggering, but also having the potential to... to do that thing where experiencing horror helps you deal with the horror of your own life. It shows you new ways and new solutions. It it allows you to relive a thing without actually being in it. It allows you to have a new perspective on on the stuff we don't talk about. And it depending on how you do the your endings, it allows you to find new ways out of personal horror, personal trauma, the, the horror of everyday life. It's almost like science fiction in that way. And like science fiction, it allows for just these really beautiful moments of imagining while sticking to a very specific set of rules. Horror is horror because it follows certain genre tropes. But within those tropes, you can find these wonderful moments of just of beauty, of understanding and and of pain and of fear, too, where where you get to see it in a new way. And it's and it's more than just a roller coaster. It's really like a a place for very visceral, emotional connection and understanding. And also humor at the same time because I have yet to see a horror movie that wasn't like completely goofy, and uh, like maybe maybe Hereditary, but like I we could talk oh, about right. <laughs> we could talk about Hereditary I, um, but like I you know there's there's something about trying to encapsulate the idea of human of human horror that always fails and so it's always a there's always like a little bit of humor in there because nothing is as horrifying as the real traumas that happen in people's lives like there's there's just no way to put it to film correctly there's no way to describe it in words correctly there's no there's no work of art that perfectly encapsulates it it's it is so distinct and personal that if if you're trying to do that and you don't have a sense of humor, if you don't realize how silly and like almost nihilistic what you're doing is, then it's not a good horror movie. It's not a good horror story. The humor has to be there.
0: Yeah. Do you find yourself uh, making a division between more speculative aspects of horror versus realistic aspects of horror in order to disassociate from the trauma of that realized horror that happens every day so thinking like you said hereditary it's a, a story mm. that is so outlandish but at the same time feels like it was done in a way that was more realistic or yeah it was more innovative i would say than a, maybe some other horror movies which is why it had a, an impactful you know, rolling in, in people's reception of it, and just like Midsummer, like it's sort of outlandish, but it could happen. Whereas, like something like I don't know, Freddy Krueger, you know, is outside <laughs> of the realm of possibility. So, yes. do you th- see yourself having those conversations where, like, oh, this is um, this is horrific, maybe, but it's not necessarily horror, or I don't know, thinking about those divisions.
1: I actually, what I think is that the horror genre covers more things than we think it does. Like, I, I feel like the the speculative, the supernatural horror is, is just great and, like, fully embraces the goofiness. And the more realistic ones, again, don't get me started on Hereditary, those are are doing similar work because they still work within the tropes. But I also feel kind of like romance movies are kind of horror movies. Like I feel I feel like the genre <laughs> the genre is bigger than we think it is or like every reality TV show like <laughs> I yeah. I think I think there's a lot of like entering uncanny and unsettling worlds is is really at the core of of horror. And rather than saying, like, if this type of world is closer to our world, that's, that's like good or, or has a different kind of horror feel, and then the, the otherworldly ones have a different kind of horror feel, I'd say that that, that unworldliness is something that is, um, that there's horror in everything. And, and I'd be more inclined to include more things that are not considered horror into the horror genre than I would be to exclude things that are kind of horror-ish from the genre. Yeah.
0: I want to keep going down this path because just the tremendous role that Jordan Peele has played in just like overturning this entire genre. It cannot be overstated. Right. And so, you know, thinking about the difference between like trauma, porn and horror, I think Jordan Peele has really made a name for himself because with us, you see that there is this semblance of reality that, you know, is borderline eerie, but also is so... Well, situated in this idea of having an alternative reality that's so close to our own that yep. having them pass across each other could be within the realm of possibility. Whereas if you think about something like them, which is like a parody or a, even a travesty of us, uh, there was a lot of criticism that, you know, them was just pandering to audiences who were looking for those racialized narratives and that it was trauma porn because it, the, hor- the horrific aspects of it really didn't push the narrative forward. It was something that drew attention back to racism and white feelings. So can you yeah. parse through that for listeners, uh, the difference oh, between man. trauma porn and, and horror?
1: Um, well, I will say that uh, I am aware of them, but I haven't seen them. I have seen us. I think oh yeah, so trauma porn is is sticky. I would still say that it's it's horror, but it's almost meta horror. And like people aren't most people aren't gonna get that, but like the the fact that there's this larger societal thing where we're living in a white supremacist society that just like drinks black tears for fun and like rewards that is truly horrific. And I I I would agree that it's it's definitely the nuance is is where we should be looking in terms of horror. That's that's always the case. It again, I, I think it goes back to what I was saying about those those small moments. Like I, I hope us spoilers are okay. But, um, the, <laughs> the moment in, in us where we suddenly realize that the two versions of the mom are, are switched, you know, or of the main character, like, again, like you were saying, that that blurring of the two worlds, that it's always been one world, is just... that's it. And it's, and it's so hard to see unless you're getting real up close. And again, like like I was saying about the genre, when you're getting real up close to things, they start to look very weird and sometimes comical. But then, I mean, Jordan Peele is is a genius in both comedy and horror. Like, it's almost when you're laughing that you can feel comfortable enough to get up close to all of those strange, weird, near repulsive moments. Whereas in, in trauma porn we're talking about pathos. We're talking about like we're talking about manipulative theater. We're talking about something that is that is so heavy-handed and unnuanced that you don't get to um, that that it becomes a, a form of horror in and of itself.
0: And that's great. So what's the spookiest place you've been in in Rhode Island or in Providence? Ah Well, I,
1: there, uh, it's going to sound weird, but um, the neighborhood where Ciceretta Jones, the uh, world famous black opera singer, used to live, it's right by the Roger Williams Monument. But there's this weird dark corner there where her plaque is. And it's it's a small plaque, and then there's just grass and like a big heavy tree that always makes it dark, no matter how light it is outside. I don't think it's like the the history of that spot, although I I'm gonna go out out on a limb and guess it wasn't as nice a neighborhood then as it is now. But there's something so like heady and and dark and. Like it, it looks like a spot that everybody else in in this massive city just decided to kind of go, no, we're not gonna, we're not gonna go here. Um, <laughs> it's very, yeah, it's just like, how come there's no houses here here, guys? What happened? Um, and I don't know. A, a hookah club on Federal Hill at like two am. on a Saturday in the summer. That's I mean it's not it's not scary, but it is dangerous. Hmm. Yeah, I think I'll go with that for now. And then and then the ocean. <laughs> the ocean is terrifying. I don't understand why people don't think it's not terrifying, it's terrifying.
0: Yeah. It is. <laughs> Do you find yourself um I don't know in your own art in your own practice is one of your goals to scare yourself like is that the way you know something is well written and like you have this feeling that you can't overcome um with your own work or
1: i think speaking of bravery and and of my own mentors the way to write good horror is to is to go toward the thing that scares you is to allow yourself to be vulnerable on the page um, because that is that is also truly scary but that's also the only way to get at like a real human experience my instincts go toward the thing that I'm I'm scared to write rather than the thing that necessarily scares me I should also say that my my purpose in writing horror is not to be scary per se like i'm again i'm not after the roller coaster feeling i'm not after the haunted house feeling i'm after the the moment in hereditary where like he hits his head on the desk or in the exorcist where she's at the doctor like it's not scary because you're like oh she's at the doctor but like she's at the doctor and it's really horrifying and then you kind of realize yeah it's horrifying for everybody and then imagine if you needed this kind of care all the time imagine if it was the 80s like i'm i'm after those moments of horror like dread and um loss of control not not boo you know not not a jump scare
0: yeah i hear that like while you were speaking, it reminded me a lot of this sort of um, theoretical concept called hauntology, and so that yes. comes from Derrida, and it's been sort of utilized thinking more uh, specifically about black horror or a type of horror specific to the African diasporic experience, and so a lot of, you know, conversation has been around Toni Morrison's Beloved and how that's a sort of Black hauntology. So can you maybe discuss what that means to you or maybe flesh out a bit of what hauntology, you know, is to this genre of horror, if there is a relation?
1: Oh, wow. Um, I I will say that I haven't read much of the the theory on hauntology, um, but I I can speak directly to Beloved specifically, and, and I think to to my own understanding of hauntology where we're talking about and I guess too to what I was saying about Rhode Island we're talking about layers of time we're we're talking about being not away from the past by being in the present but in fact being inextricably tied to it and that 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 particular phenomenon destroys what any notions of what we think of as reality, because we, we take comfort in the reality of things being absolute. And this, this connection to the past, this agency of the past and the present becomes the thing that tears down stability, tears down the separation between the two, tears down people and minds. It's inescapable. And in that way, like the ocean, very beautiful, very taunting. And I am an enormous fan of Beloved. I think that is a, a very good example of a horror story that's that's more about that, that dread and more about human experience, true human experience, than it is about being just run-of-the-mill um, Stephen King scary. And I didn't mean to drag Stephen King; he's fine, but you know, <laughs> Morrison's better. <Yeah>. That's all.
0: <laughs> yeah, thanks. All right. Maybe turning attention to some of your, you know, literary considerations. Could you name, uh, like, your top five all-time favorite novels or stories that incorporate horror? Oh.
1: Uh. Oh geez, um, uh, you have
0: to give the listeners something to <laughs> you know, to research right? themselves. Yeah,
1: I'll just I'll just pull it up. Um, do they have to be stories, or can it be film as well?
0: Yeah, maybe top five film and stories.
1: There's a story by Clive Barker, who's a filmmaker and like has had many of his stories turned into films, called "In the Hills, the Cities." which is in, I think, the first volume of his Books of Blood short story series. It is a story about an openly gay couple, and he wrote it in the 80s, so think about that. Um, (laughs) It's just, (laughs) like again, the 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 sheer amount of bravery and and he just tells the story. He's not being pedantic. He's not trying to make a statement with it. It is it is clearly a story that is his personal story taken to this amazing and and like thrilling and quite horrifying extent. Beloved, absolutely what I'm really interested in, beloved, is the parallels between the spiritual world and the real world just thinking about what the story might actually look like in terms of like if you if you said yes everything that happens in the story is true but what if what if there was no supernatural reason for these things to be happening i I could write an essay about it, and I won't. I won't go into it now. But I, I just, I chew on that mentally all the time. Well, my, my favorite horror movie of all time is Mulholland Drive, by uh, David Lynch. It's known. It's known for having one of the most horrifying movements uh, moments in a horror movie ever, and the the horrifying moment in it is just building dread that builds and builds and builds to the point where like, no matter what you saw at the end of the scene, like it would just be horrifying. Like you could just see a bunny and it would just be like the worst thing you'd ever seen. He's very much about going into those other other realms of consciousness, of dream states, etc. And that's, it's really heavy and beautiful in the film. Do I have to do two more or is that good?
0: <laughs> <laughs> no, this is good. You given us uh, quite a bit to show on. You um, there's something about the psychological mm. aspects of, like, what I think you're uh, saying about Mulholland Drive that makes me very fearful. I would rather have something right. um, kind of ridiculous or, you know, unbelievable rather than having something that parallels life. So yep. I appreciate the, the shout outs to David Lynch, but I won't be watching that by myself, <laughs> I don't think. <laughs> highly recommend it's just it's a trip so yeah thank you for your time and lastly i just want to direct people to what you're doing now so if you want to shout out any projects or where people can find you in the upcoming months feel free to do that yeah
1: um so you can find me at hidden here press on instagram and i'm actually i'm kind of Not in a place where I'm taking money for my art, but I do happily do commissions, especially if they're for BIPOC organizations or local organizations that are helping the community. That's my very favorite thing to do. And I'm working on some games right now, specifically role-playing games and some augmented reality guerrilla art. And... Hopefully, in theory, you'll just see it out in the world someday, and nobody will know that it's me, but anybody who listens to this interview will.
0: Well, until then, we'll, you know, keep our eyes peeled (laughs) (laughs) for what you're doing. (laughs) Um, But thank you, (laughs) Jenea.
1: Thank you so much. This has been so much fun. Thank you.
0: This episode was sponsored by the Rhode Island State Council on the Arts and was edited by me, Alex Hainsworth. Thank you
1: to the RISD Museum for housing this podcast on their website and a special thank you to Brendan
0: Campbell, Jeremy Radke, Deborah Clemens, and Sarah Gans-Blythe for additional support. Thank you also to Coma Studio for the song you can hear in the beginning and the end of this podcast. Thank you for listening.